And for the folks here, of course, you have the uh, handouts. So if you didn't get the handouts, there's two of them available for you. One is the syllabus. If you already have it, it's the same thing. And then the other one is our handout for this evening, which uh, will be helpful as we study along. But I'll be adding a lot of different things tonight that aren't part of the handout. That's just the, the basics, if you will. So it's good to see you, and uh, I think what uh, I kind of like to pray before we start, I usually think that's a good thing, and I uh, ask the Lord to bless our time together. Thanks for being here tonight, uh, and again, it's a busy night here at church. We have uh, the Iwana uh, Carnival taking place, so all the Iwana kids will be all charged up. If you have kids down there, they'll all be sugared up, so don't expect them to go to bed when you go home. Uh, they'll be running around yelling and screaming, having a great time. Uh, and the youth group course, too, several of them are helping with uh, the festivities this evening, and some of our adults are doing the same, so I'm glad you folks are here, so I got somebody to talk to, and uh, I think we'll have a great time as we study the Word of God this evening. Thank you, Carl. Anyone else need handouts? Get one of that uh, Josh Steele guy. <laughs> By the way, uh, before we pray, then while we're handing things out, I will be here this Sunday morning. Now, I haven't been gone since uh, the first part of February, so uh, you've had me all summer. You couldn't get rid of me, uh, but uh, Sunday night, I'll be taking off with Valerie for a week in Tennessee, so we'll be down at uh, uh, Country Gospel Convention. It goes for about a week, so we'll be down there and enjoying some good old music, and uh so Josh Steele and uh, will be teaching Wednesday night the next two weeks. At least I hope he will. And uh, if not, it's going to get boring in here. But uh, Josh will be here teaching. And then uh, October 2nd, so not this Sunday, but a week from Sunday, uh, Josh is preaching all day. So Sunday morning, uh, Sunday school, Sunday night. So we're going to break this guy in and uh, let him, let him uh, have at it. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'll be watching on the internet, so I want to hear some, want to hear some good preaching from my good buddy Josh Steele. So I'm looking forward to that. All right, well let's pray and get started. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for these folks that are here this evening. Thank you for those that have been watching on the internet. Thank you for uh, that wonderful venue that you provided for us. Now I pray as we open up the only book that you've ever given us to read and study, the precious Word of God. I pray that uh, you'd instruct us, that you'd help us to understand this extremely important and transitional book that takes us from, if you will, the Old Testament law to the age of grace in which we live today in the new church age. So, Father, bless our time together. Pray that it might be informative. And, uh, Lord, of course, that, as always, you'd bless your word. So we commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, again, good to see you here. We're coming to you from uh, those watching from afar, Union Grove Baptist Church in the Union Grove, Wisconsin. And you say, well, why do you say that? Because there's actually other Union Grove Baptist churches, and they are not in the Union Grove, Wisconsin. So that is us. So we're uh, glad you're here with us this evening. All right. Well, we're going to get right into it. I have... Uh, I, I never get done on time. I try, 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 but I, I don't know. We'll, we'll try to get out on time for a change tonight. I'm not guaranteeing anything, but we'll get close. I actually, this is supposed to go from uh, 6.30 to 7.45, uh, 
So you say, oh, why 745? Well, that gives me a 15-minute window before Awana's out, just in case I do what I always do and go over a little bit. So anyway, we'll see what happens. Uh, X chapter 1. Now, we've been, last week we went through the first three verses. Today we're going to try and get through uh, verse 14. And just a very quick review of uh, a little bit of what we did last week. Of course, we won't go into all the things again, but uh, just to set the, the tone for the book of Acts, uh, starting at verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, it'll be on the screens. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the former account I made. All right, a couple of questions, and, you do, and uh, please feel free to talk to me. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke did, all right. And uh, did Luke have any other books that he had written besides Acts? The Gospel of Luke, right? So that's an easy one. So the former account, Luke states, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. We'll be going through some of that tonight. Verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. All right, so uh, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how many days did he spend ministering on the earth? 40. Now there's another major event, and sometimes that number gets confused there's the number 50 that's involved here. What happened 50 days after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Pentecost, right, which is a huge issue. Now, if you look on the syllabus, you're going to see that next week and the week after when I'm not here, uh, we're going to skip Acts chapter 2. Uh, Josh uh, Steele will be teaching uh, Act of finishing up Acts 1 and going into Acts 3. You say, well, why'd you do that? Because Acts 2 is the major transitional chapter in Acts, and there's a great deal of information I want to get to you. So I'm going to be spending two weeks in the book of Acts, starting uh, uh, actually three weeks from tonight, and we'll be going through it. Many of the extreme controversial issues take place in Acts 2. And uh, we're going to get into that. I don't want to get too much into it tonight because there is so much information there. The confusion that exists, a lot of it between uh, those that embrace, if you will, the charismatic gifts, i.e. Pentecostals, uh, charismatics, um, other different groups versus why are other churches not exercising alleged spiritual gifts today. So we'll look at that, and we'll get into detail. We'll show uh, Acts chapter 2 is actually quoting Old Testament minor prophet prophecy, Joel chapter 2, and uh, it's very interesting. So in three weeks, uh, if you uh, read Acts chapter 2, read Joel chapter 2, and prepare yourself, we're going to get into probably some of the heaviest stuff that we've done here at the church, probably since I've been here, and we're going to go into some of those highly controversial areas that uh, have caused so much division in the uh, church across the world today. All right, so let's get back to Acts chapter 1 again. So we're looking at Jesus was on earth, so his death, burial, and resurrection takes place. Now we're going to take a little bit of time 
when he was on this earth for those 40 days. The Bible says what? Verse 3, he presented himself by what? Many infallible proofs being seen by them. Well, who's them, right? We, inquiring minds want to know. So if you take your Bibles, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, another extremely important passage. Now, verses 1 to 4 give the gospel. This is the main definition. What is the gospel? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 explains it in the first four verses. And then in verse 5, it starts to go through what Acts 1 is talking about. Who saw Jesus after his resurrection, which of course is extremely important. All right, so uh, 1 Corinthians 15, just a quick reminder of the gospel, and then we'll get into what actually, uh, who saw Christ after the resurrection. The Apostle Paul again says, Moreover, brethren, brethren always referring who? To God's people, Christians. I declare to you the, the what? The gospel. By the way, what does the word gospel mean? Good news, right? Here's the good news. Uh, I declare to you the gospel, the good news which I uh, gave to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin? Saved from the penalty of sin. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right, here comes the gospel. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, why did he say according to the scriptures here? Was the death of Christ ever prophesied in the scriptures, which had to be when? Well, we look at the Old Testament uh, scriptures. Did the Old Testament scriptures ever prophesy the death of Christ? Isaiah, one of the key passages, Isaiah 53, where Isaiah, a thousand years before Christ, basically talks about this one who would suffer and give his life. And it's, of course, speaking of Christ. So according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. All right. Uh, when we think about burial in our vernacular, we think of going to a cemetery, taking the casket and putting it down six feet. Is that what this burial amounted to? No. So when you go to Israel with us, hint, hint, in uh, uh, March, hopefully, of 2024, will take you to uh, tombs where they would place the bodies of people that had passed away. Now, there's not a whole lot of, of those available, available, uh, uh, visible at this point, but there's still some that you can go to, some that are actually there, uh, open, that are ancient tombs. Now, here's an, this is way off track, but it, it, it ties right into this. When someone died, passed away during the time of Christ, they would take the body, they would wrap it up, they would put it in a tomb. Now, many of you have seen the pictures, right? you got the big uh, rocks, they carve them out, or they're caves, and then they basically put something in front of them. When you put the body in the tomb, did it stay there for eternity? Yes, no. All right. Um, and it would be hard because you don't have mics. You're, those who said no are correct, but if you're thinking from a spiritual standpoint, that's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the bones 
that were placed in the tomb. Of course, the skin was on them, everything else. When they placed the body in the tomb, of course, Jesus, the whole thing disappeared, his whole body. But when the, uh, in ancient times, when the Jewish people put the bodies in the tomb, they waited until the body completely decomposed. Then they would go back in the tomb, believe it or not, they would take the bones out of the tomb because they were going to reuse it. You say, boy, that's different. Culturally, what happened was they'd take the, bot, the bones out and they'd have had what was known as an ossuary. An ossuary is about, eh, about yay big, uh, so it's about, oh, say, two feet by maybe about a foot, foot and a half. And if, uh, if you go on the Internet, you can see a bunch. I should have done it, put some pictures up. But it's an ossuary. So they would take the bones, they basically kind of fold them up, stick them in this small container, and then they'd put it somewhere on their property. And that's where the bones would stay. So they didn't uh, do what we normally would do because then what would they do? The next person that died, the uh, caves, the tombs, if you will, they weren't that plentiful, so they put the next body in, they'd wait till it decomposed and put them in an ossuary, and that's where they would stay. All right, so that's a little free history for you. All right, so Christ died for our sins. He was buried. Basically, he was put inside the tomb, stone, put, stone placed in front of the tomb, but, of course, as we know, on the third day, he did what? He rose again according to the Scriptures. All right, now the next verse, starting at verse 5, these are very, very important documentations of who actually saw Christ. So, uh, again, if there is no resurrection, is there any Christianity? There's not. Everything rises and falls on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If Christ had not died, there's no payment for sins. But the only way that, that payment could happen is not only that he died, but he had to be God, so he rose again three days later to prove he was God. All right? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then, we start to get a list, at least a partial list, of those individuals who literally saw Jesus post-resurrection. So he was seen by Cephas, which of course is Peter, then by the twelve. All right? So all uh, the disciples saw him at one point after his resurrection. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. And, of course, this is speaking in the, in the time of Christ, of whom the greater part remained to the present. So when Paul was writing this uh, epistle to the Corinthians, the majority of people that had literally seen Christ resurrect from the dead were still alive. So he's talking about 500 of these people but some have fallen asleep, and of course, fallen asleep in Scripture refers to what? To death, all right? Number four, after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then Paul says, and here's a good one, he said, then last of all, he was seen by me, speaking of Paul, also as one born out of due time. This is one of the most important statements in Scripture when it comes to what we're going to be looking at in Acts as we progress through it. Paul is making a very important statement here. Did Paul see Jesus before his ascension? No. And Paul is saying, listen, the last person to see Jesus was me. 
Now, where did Paul see Jesus at? Road to Damascus, all right? The, uh, Christ comes up to him, knocks him, on, knocks him down, basically takes his sight away after that. And uh, uh, Paul basically had no clue who Jesus was at that point, but he knew something. And he says, uh, uh, the Lord calls out to him, and he says, Who are you, Lord? Uh, so he had a clue. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul becomes the next apostle, all right? One of the clarifications, one of the prerequisites to be an apostle was you had to have seen whom? Had to have seen Christ. So in order for Paul to be that next apostle, he had to have seen Christ. Now, again, when we get into the book of Acts, and it's, we're not going to get there tonight. This is when we get a little bit further into the book. Paul becomes a major player. Now, this one I think most of you should know. Who was Paul sent to preach the gospel to, not to the exclusion of another group, but what was the main group he was called to preach to? The Gentiles, all right? So we have up until this point, and in Acts, we're just starting the process. We're going from that totally Jewish system, if you will, the Old Testament law, all the different things that went along with that, and now all of a sudden, we're going to break into, and we're going to hit it tonight, where things begin to change, where it's no longer confined specifically to the Jewish people. Think about this statement that Jesus made. There's a little doggy that's uh, underneath the table, if you remember that little story. And uh, this uh, a Gentile lady comes in, and basically they're pushing crumbs onto the floor, and Jesus basically says, I'm not called but to the lost sheep of who? Israel. He wasn't ready to go to the Gentiles yet. Wasn't wasn't time for that. And this lady is persistent, and finally Jesus said, listen, uh, and she says, don't even you feed the dogs with the crumbs. And he's like, listen, uh, your faith, uh, by your faith in me, basically uh, I'm accepting you. So that lady, a Gentile, basically makes a move. She proselytizes, if you will, into Christianity or into, at that point, still Judaism because the ascension had to take place. All these little nuances are going to develop in the book of Acts. So when I say some of these things, it's like, what's a proselyte? What's a Jew? What's a Gentile? How does all this fit together? How did the gospel advance? It's all going to be through these 28 chapters of Acts as we transition out. All right, but keep this in mind. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, Paul becomes a major player. And he's a major player to what group of people again? Was that to the exclusion of the Jews? Absolutely not. But God says, listen, Paul, I've got a special mission for you. We're breaking out of the old way of doing business, if you will, and you're specifically called to reach the Gentiles with the gospel of the grace of God no longer requiring, if you will, the proselytizing that took place prior to that. All right, let's go to verse 4, Acts 1. All right, and uh, being dissembled together with them, Jesus with his disciples, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. All right, so again, most of you will know the answer to this. What why did God want the disciples to stay together after he ascends? 
what was going to happen. Okay, uh, Pentecost is just 10 days away after the ascension, and what are they waiting for? Well, go to uh, uh, John chapter 14 for a moment. I'm gonna have to, it's not on the screen, so John chapter 14. And in John 14, we're given exactly what was to take place. And it's going to happen in the book of Acts. All right, so many of you are familiar with the first several verses of John, which he spoke literally uh, uh, hours before he would be betrayed and crucified. John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. And where I go you know and the way you know. Now, let's just park here for two seconds. Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm going away. Where was he going to? Where, where was Jesus going to go to after his ascension in 40 days here on earth? Going up to heaven. And he said, I'm going to do what? I'm going to prepare places for you, dwelling places for you. All right? So up in heaven, now whether he's, and here's where a little debate goes. Is he, are there actually specific dwelling places in heaven, or is the new Jerusalem, which is already in heaven, waiting to come down to this earth? Are we actually going to be inhabiting that? Don't know. Scripture is vague on that issue. But the bottom line is, Jesus said, I'm going up to heaven. I'm going to prepare places for you. He's talking to the disciples. And now what does he say? And if I go away, which he definitely did, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself. When might that be? The rapture, right? When all the dead and alive in Christ will be translated up to heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 54. Verse 5, uh, or verse 4, he says, And where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Now Jesus just said, listen, Thomas, you ought to know this. And Thomas says, I don't know this. And in verse 6, Jesus said to him, All right, Thomas, listen up, brother. I am what? The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. All right, we're going to skip down uh, to verse, uh, let's see, 16. Let's go to verse 15. Jesus is now praying for the disciples, and he's asking God at this point, of course, he knows it's going to come because he's omniscient as well, and he's making this prayer regarding something to happen in the future. Now, it's going to be fulfilled in Acts 2, but here's what he's praying. Uh, in uh, uh, Acts, or I'm sorry, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another who? Helper. Who's the helper? That he may abide with you forever. In verse 17, he tells us who the helper is. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
All right, so back in John chapter 14, right before the crucifixion, Jesus is praying, and or he says he will pray for them that the Lord would send them that helper. All right, go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, Jesus is still with the disciples. He commanded them, you listen, guys, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, John 14, 16, which he said, you have heard from me. All right, so we're, again, everything is just starting to get set uh, around what Jesus is going to be doing. All right, so just a couple of uh, pictures, artist rendition of what potentially Jerusalem would have looked like at that time. Remember that during the time of Jesus, was the second temple still in Jerusalem? Was the second temple still in Jerusalem? That's kind of like a uh, a leading question. <laughs> it's what the lawyers say uh, when they ask you, "Did you actually hit John in the?" And, and uh, that's that's what we call a leading question. Did you ever hit anyone in the face? Well, I hit John. That's that's the way it should go. So a good judge will stop that kind of nonsense. Anyway, uh, here's what's taking place. So if you look on the screen, you'll see a rend- artist rendition of what. Uh, the second temple might have looked like. Of course, the the big smoke going up there would be the sacrificial uh, altar, the altar where the Jewish priests would have sacrificed animals and so forth. But, uh, I mean, it's huge. It's massive. It uh, uh, was something to behold back in the day. Um, And this is, again, a little bit wider artist's rendition of what it might have looked like, and it's probably fairly close based on what we know. And it's a bit different today there than it was back in AD 70. Now in AD 70 of course the major change takes place. Approximately when did Jesus die? When was he crucified? What year? AD 30, 33 based on how you date it. Uh, But now we're going ahead so the second temple stood in this place until AD 70 when the Romans come in and basically tear it all down what Jesus had prophesied, and I always love to go here because Jesus prophesied that that second temple would come down. Matthew 24, verses 1 to 2. Remember, the disciples come out of the temple. They, they stop Jesus, and they're like, wow, this is the most beautiful thing we've ever seen. And it was. There's no other building like it on earth. And, and they walk out, and they look back, and the disciples are like, Jesus, take a look at the temple. And he said, listen, guys, let me tell you something. Not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be cast down. It's A.D. 70, 40 years later, to fulfill Christ's prophecy, who comes in? The Romans come in, tear the temple down. And uh, just want, uh, you know I love this part, but uh, I'll try to refrain from getting too much deeper into it. Why did the Romans tear that temple down? What did they want? What did they want on that temple? What did they want in the temple? Gold, silver, precious stones, everything. There was a massive amount of uh, things in that temple that the Roman Empire needed. Why did they need all of the money that they would steal from God's temple to do what? To rebuild? That's another hint. Rebuild what empire? The Roman Empire. Why? Because who allegedly had it burned down. 
Nero, all right? Again, there's historical debate on whether Nero was actually involved in it burning down, but what is no debate is the empire literally burned down. It was burned down. They needed money. So when uh, 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 Vespasian, who was the ruler in Rome, said, listen, Titus, my good buddy son, I want you to go and take care of those Jewish people that have been causing us Romans nothing but fits in Jerusalem. Israel was under what rule at that time when uh, in 70 AD? Who was running? Was it the Jewish people running Israel? No, it was the who? Romans, same one that put Jesus on the cross and, and uh, uh, took part in the crucifixion. So these individuals, he, they had the power. They're like, go back there, Titus. Take over Jerusalem, plunder the place, disperse the Jews, kill anyone who's in your way, take down every single stone on that temple because we need all the gold and the all the other things that are there. We need all of the vessels and the silver and, and just bring it all back to Rome because we need that to rebuild this place because it got knocked down, all right? So that's exactly Jesus prophesied that uh, 40 years early. Someone else prophesied about that temple coming down 500 years earlier. Somebody named Zechariah, which prophesied about that, or I'm sorry, Daniel, that prophesied about that temple coming down in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. All right, so 500 years before the temple came down, Daniel prophesied about it, Daniel 9, 26. Jesus prophesied about it 40 years before it happened, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 2, and that's exactly what happened. So when we look at this picture up on the screen right now, where you see in the kind of the middle left of the screen, you'll see the Dome of the Rock, which is the Muslim shrine, which was put up in approximately 700, not B.C., but A.D., when basically uh, the Prophet Muhammad uh, alleged that, or at least the, Jew, the Muslim people alleged that's where uh, Muhammad ascended up to heaven, and so they built the Dome of the Rock there as a shrine, not a mosque, but a shrine to the Prophet uh, Muhammad. All right, so that's what sits on God's Temple Mount today. Will that shrine eventually come down? Well, according to our Muslim friends, it comes down over their dead bodies. Uh, it's never coming down, and it's going to stay there. Well, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 make it very clear that unfortunately, and it's, it's a sad situation, that actually that temple will come, or that shrine will come down over the dead bodies of the Muslim world. You say, how do you know that? Ezekiel 38 and 39 talks about all the nations that surround Jerusalem and literally names them. That's a whole other study, but it names the nations, all the nations surrounding Israel today. What's the main religion? It's Islam. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. By the way, when uh, uh, Ezekiel was written, did Islam exist? It did not. Okay, again, the Prophet Muhammad didn't come on the scene until 700 A.D. That's actually when all the writings and everything comes to fruition. Again, our Muslim friends would say, well, no, it's always been. That's just simply when it was codified, if you will, uh, by Muhammad. And I'm, we're not going to get into... Uh, 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 that particular religion tonight, 
But the issue is, back when Ezekiel wrote it, there was no Islam. What, what's the common denominator about all the different cities that surround Israel? There was none at that time until we get to AD 70 when all of a sudden every single nation starts to adapt to one specific religion, which happens to be Islam, which happens to hate Israel with a passion. All right? So it makes sense. So Ezekiel 38 and 39 tells us that those nations rise up. They come over the hills of, Jer of Israel. They come down on Jerusalem, and God makes it very clear in Ezekiel, the end of 38 and start of 39, he destroys all of those who come after them. Well, folks, if the, if the, the armies and the, and the Islamic people are basically depleted and they have no juice anymore, no political power, What's going to stop that shrine from being taken down? Zero, not a nothing. So now, how it's going to come down? Scripture doesn't say. Will it be destroyed by a bomb? Don't know. Will, uh, after Ezekiel 38 and 39 come to pass, will the Jewish people tear it down? Don't know. The only thing I know specifically that the Scriptures tell us is that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that temple must come down and God's third temple will be raised. Tony? Jimmy DeYoung said a stick of dynamite. Well, <laughs> that very well could be. Now, here's actually where that came from. And, of course, uh, uh, Jimmy DeYoung was, uh, I was very close with him. He's one of my mentors. What he was talking about, and, and it may have been another thing I I've heard just about everything he's done, but here's what happened back in 1967, and this is for real. In 1967, which was the, the six-day war in Israel, here's what happens. The Jewish people, which had not had control of that property, didn't have control of it. That mount was up there. The Muslims controlled the property in 1967. In 1967, the Six-Day War, the Jewish people recovered control of that Temple Mount. Rabbi Shlom Gorin, who was a part of the military at that time in the Israel Defense Force, the IDF, they come into that area. The first thing they do is one of the soldiers goes on top of the Dome of the Rock with an Israeli flag and plants it on the top of the Dome of the Rock. It is alleged that Shlom Gorin then takes a, not one stick of dynamite, but a whole handful of dynamite. And this is true. Uh, it's just a matter of whether it was Shlom Gorin or someone else. But an Israeli uh, a soldier takes a handful of dynamite, starts to walk into the Dome of the Rock to blow to smithereens. That's a factual statement. What happens is, and I'm uh, Levi mm, Eskal, a uh, general who I can't remember right now. Uh, I've read his book. It's great. Bottom line is the people that were in command at that time said, stand down, IDF, Israel Defense Force, stand down, get off the property, get that flag off the top of the Dome of the Rock. The Jewish rabbis went ballistic. They're like, what are you talking about? Stand down. We just regained what we've been trying to get for a good period of time basically a 2,000-year period that we've been waiting, and now you're telling us to get off the property and let it alone. And uh, the heads of, uh, the is of Israel at that time said, yeah, get off the property. Why, and there's a 
secular reason, and then I'll give you the spiritual reason. Why didn't the secular world, the Jewish leadership, who, by the way, are not Christians, they, they, uh, they're Orthodox Jews, or at least Jewish, why did they tell the Israel Defense Force to get off that property? Why'd they do that? Did not want a world war, basically, with all the Muslims coming down and wiping out Israel. That's what they were scared to death of, that the whole Muslim world, if you will, across the world would come down and basically wipe out the Jewish people. So they're like, stand down, get off that property, get that flag down. Now, quite frankly, literally, who owns that property today? Who's in control of it? It's the Jewish people. They own that property, but they basically said, listen, we don't want conflict with the Muslims. So the WAQF, W-A-Q-F, which is the Muslim WAQF, W-A-Q-F, they said, listen, you guys control that property, and <laughs> even though the Jewish people basically have control of it, they said to the Palestinians, to the Muslim world, you watch over it. So the Muslims still, by virtue of the Jewish people giving them that authority, still run that property. Now, this I'm not going to get into much more because I'm getting off track again, but the issue is this. Spiritually, from a biblical standpoint, which has nothing to do now with uh, what we just went through, that's the secular answer, why is not that third temple built yet? Because we are still here is the answer, and that's the exact answer. You say, well, what do you mean by that? What took place after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension that we're going to study between Acts chapter 1 and Acts 28? What started? The church what? The church age, the body of Christ. Our we running things according to Jewish law, Jewish Old Testament, Mosaic law. Is that taking place today? Is the church, and here's another one that we'll expand upon over the next weeks, is the church part of, listen carefully, the Old Testament Jewish prophetic calendar? No, we are not once mentioned in the Old Testament. And again, for those that are new to this, you say, can you prove that? Absolutely, we can prove it. Colossians chapter 1, and you've got to mark it down because we we're not going to go through it tonight. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 7, talks about a mystery that would occur, which is Christ in you, the church age, Gentiles coming to Christ, which was a mystery. It uses the word in both passages. You say, well, why didn't God reveal it in the Old Testament? I don't know. And he didn't tell us. He simply said it was a mystery kept secret, but now has been known, made known to the apostles and the prophets, and therefore here we are. So, again, this I'm getting way off track here, but the, the issue is who, where is the temple today? Where is the temple? It's in you. And I have 2,000 years of history to back up what I'm going to say right now. The third, the second temple was torn down, and it was the last major event on God's prophetic calendar. The church age now has existed for how many years? 
2,000 years. The temple has not been allowed. God has not allowed that temple to be rebuilt in Israel. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you. After we're raptured out of here, and this again, it's a major argument for the pre-tribulation rapture. After we're taken out of here, what happens? Daniel 9 again kicks in verse 27. Again, and I, and I wrote a whole book on this, Daniel's Gap, Paul's Mystery, What Paused the Prophetic Calendar. Well, between Daniel 9.26, the 69th week of Daniel, and Daniel 9.27, which hasn't kicked in yet, we're in between verse 26 and 27. And then that's where that first, uh, or Colossians 3, 1 to 7, Ephesians 3, uh, um, or I'm sorry, Colossians 1, 24 to 29, Ephesians 3, 1 to 7, makes it perfectly clear we are a mystery that was kept secret, but now here we are. The minute we're raptured, what then kicks in? Well, there might be a little bit of a time gap, but then Daniel's 70th week, Daniel 9, 27, kicks in. What happens in Daniel 9.27? Two major things, actually three major things. The first thing in Daniel 9.27, and I'm going to quote it, but you can look at it if you want. It says, and then he shall confirm a covenant with the many. What's it talking about? The Antichrist confirming a what? A peace treaty with the Jewish people. Jews haven't had peace in their uh, country, literally, uh, uh, <laughs> wow, going back almost to 1000 AD at this point. But they're going to have a peace treaty. The Antichrist comes on, makes a peace treaty. Second thing that happens in Daniel 9.27 is what is built? The third temple. You say, well, how do you know the third temple gets built? Because halfway through the verse, it then says, and in the midst thereof, or after three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period, Antichrist brings an end to the sacrifice and the oblation, better known as the abomination of what? Abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and on and on we go, all right? So you say, boy, that's a lot. It is a lot, and, and it, it's so much to take in, which is why so many Christians don't get prophecy. They don't understand the big picture, and that's why 60% of all Bible-believing churches in the country refuse to speak on what I just spoke on because, unfortunately, they either say it's confusing. Well, what the truth is is the pastors were never taught it in Bible school, and they don't know it. So therefore, they just avoid uh, speaking on these things. I happen to have spent the last 40 years studying prophecy, so I have a little better handle than the average pastor, which went to 16 hours of uh, prophetic teaching in uh, most Bible schools. So it's a, an unfortunate dearth that exists in Christendom today. All right. All that, Tony, over a stick of dynamite. <laughs> All right, let's move on. All right, I want you to take a look at this picture. We're going to come back to it uh, at the end of uh, our session today. This is, and of course, these things are not uh, uh, first century, but if you look up where that dome is, that's actually known as the upper room. So we're going to come back to that a little bit later when we uh, get to the end of our teaching on the disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit to come a little bit later. This is the inside of the room. 
I've been in there multiple times. It's not that big. I mean, uh, you get 100 people in there, it's pretty cramped. So, But again, it's not the original. They tout it in Israel as the original, but it had gotten torn down and uh, rebuilt many, many years ago. Here you can see some people sitting in there. So it's supposedly a rendition of what the upper room may have looked like back in the first century. All right, verse 4, being assembled together with them, he commanded them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you have heard from me. Now, here we go to another big heavy-duty issue. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, when I talk in Acts chapter 2 in a few weeks, we're going to get into this full full bore. We're going to talk about, well, what was the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What do people and what do some churches and what uh, uh, is believed to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit today? And we're going to go through it. We'll be very, I'll be very, how shall we say, balanced in my approach to what certain people believe versus... Um, what I find as the scriptural, proper scriptural understanding of what's going on. So we'll get into that, and that's something I haven't touched on in the almost three years I've been here, and it's like, all right, we're going to go there. I've avoided it almost on purpose because it's so controversial, but I will guarantee you I will hit it very, very strongly with a very, very strong biblical approach. We'll uh, do everything we can to stay away from the emotional side of things and look at it from what does Scripture literally state and why and how can we prove it. All right, so that's coming in three weeks. All right, so let's talk about this issue. Uh, let's go to the concept of John truly baptized with water. Here is one of the major, another major issues. So we have the issue of the speaking in tongues and the charismatic gifts uh, and all of those things, which we'll get to in three weeks. Now we got another issue. What is one of the biggest issues in, in the world today is how do you get to heaven? You say, whoa, 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 here at Union Grove Baptist Church, we hear it every week, we hear it every one, every, I mean, we hear it all the time. Although if you go out on the street and you ask almost anybody, how do you get to heaven? You're going to hear 60,000 different answers, but they're all going to usually come down to one of three things. One is, well, I believe I'm going to heaven because I'm better than most people. That's the most common answer that you're going to get. You'll go to others who you'll ask, how do you know, you know, do you know for sure if you died you go to heaven? Well, I think so. Well, why do you think so? Well, uh, uh, my mom and dad, at some point, I, I was baptized, okay? So when were you baptized? Well, I was baptized when I was a baby, all right? And you think because you were baptized that you're going to get to heaven. Well, I hope so. And it's never assurance. There's rarely a person that says, yeah, I was baptized as an infant. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because of my baptism, I'm going to heaven. Now, by the way, if you go to a funeral in a Lutheran church, you will hear them say they were baptized into the kingdom. And they'll give the age when they were baptized as an infant. And you say, well, Pastor Rich, what do you think about that? I, I think it is not true. It's a biblical, uh, uh, theological untruth. No one is ever going to heaven because they were baptized as a baby. You say, well, can you prove that? Well, the issue is those that teach that, and I'm trying to be respectful here. 
There is no place in Scripture, I mean zero, nada, no place in the Bible that talks about baptizing babies. It does not exist. You say, well, where did it come from? Well, there are three specific passages, and I don't want to do a class on baptism right now. There are three specific passages that, if you will, those that hold to baptismal regeneration and other salvation by baptism go to. The issue is the back in the 1600s, 1600s, baptism was a huge issue in the state-run churches, the mandatory churches that people were required to go to. And Luther and Calvin, which are the two main theologians that came out of the Reformation, they were able to correct one piece of the state-run churches that existed. What was that thing that they finally figured out and got right? That salvation is by faith. Luther finally said, the just shall live by what? By faith. Luther finally got that part, but he was still indoctrinated in, if you will, the old, and all due respect, Catholic, Anglican, Church of England, all those things which came out of that all still exist today. So you say, well, why are you bringing this up? Because, folks, here's the big issue that, that we need to get into. What was baptism? What is scriptural baptism? And why is there still so much confusion in the world today about baptism? Baptism is a key problem in the church, in false religions across the world and right here at home. And I've stated this a few weeks ago. To my knowledge, Union Grove Baptist Church is the only church in Union Grove that teaches salvation by faith apart from nothing else. No baptism, no Lord's Supper, 100% by faith and faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3, 5 and 6, John 3, 16 and 17 and so forth. Saved by faith alone. Every other group teaches you've got to be baptized to go to heaven. Or you have to take the Lord's Supper. Or you have to be good. Those three things are all in there. Some combined, some separated, but they're all part of it. All right, so we need to understand what is baptism, what happened historically, where in the world did that concept even come from? If I asked you that question and I handed you a blank sheet of paper now and asked you to explain to me where did the concept of baptism come from, how did it start, what is the historical application of it in the Old Testament, the Gospels, and the Pauline epistles? Most of you would probably struggle with that. So let me help you out. We're going to go to it, and I'm, I'm going to give you, uh, again, it's a lot of information, but these are things that we need to know. Why do we say baptism after you place your faith and trust in Christ? And most of you can answer that question. But where did it come from? All right, so very quickly, if you go back to the Old Testament, it set the stage for what now would become Christian baptism. In the Old Testament law, hundreds of times the Bible talks about washings. What were washings? Well, if you go back to Jewish culture, and actually, I'm going to go back to that picture for a moment here. All right, let's get back here. 
All right. Uh, if you look to the, and you can't see it on, on the picture, but if you look to the far end of where that rectangular temple mount is, at the base of the, then that will be the southern wall. Southern wall, if you, and I've been there, and the excavations have uncovered a item known as a mikvah, M-I-K-V-A-H. This is extremely important. The mikvah was, mikvahs, there's uh, been over 100 of them uncovered by archaeologists. The mikvah was the place where the Jewish men would go to cleanse themselves before they went into the temple. Now you say, well, where is that in the Old Testament? It is not in the Old Testament. The washings are mandated in the Old Testament. And I could give you dozens and dozens of verses that talk about washing. Uh, Let me just give you a couple. Uh, Leviticus chapter 8, verse 6. Cleansing with water for physical as well as spiritual purity was commanded in the Old Testament. Moses bathed Aaron and his sons before their ordination as priests. Again, Leviticus 8, 6. Constantly you'll refer to things called washings. They were washed. They were washings. Uh, At times it's wash your feet. At times it's wash your hands. And there were times to be ceremonially clean. The whole body was to be washed. So what would the Jewish men do? All right? They had to appear at the temple how many times a year? Three times at the three pilgrim feast. Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets. Before they could come up on the temple, they had built these mikvahs. The mikvahs were what? For the men to walk down into and to be cleansed, ceremonially cleansed, before they could go up on the temple. This technically is the start of what would morph into what we'll now call Christian baptism. So, it was a ceremonial cleansing. Because they went into the, the mikvah, did that make them sanctified, saved believers? No. It was simply a ritual cleansing. Now we come to the next section here. So again, all where the temple used to be, those mikvahs are there. They're still there. You can, they were built some thousands, 2,000 plus years ago, and they're still there today. So when you come to Israel with us, I'll show them to you, okay? That's a promise. All right, so let's move back here. All right. So, okay, sorry. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. For John truly baptized with water. Well, wait a minute. What was John doing when he was baptizing? Is that the same as what we call Christian baptism today? And the answer is no, it was not. All right? So we have the Old Testament washings. We now have John in the River Jordan who's baptizing individuals. And Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. We're talking about John the Baptist, who will prepare your way before you. This comes right out of a quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Old Testament minor prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Prophesied by Isaiah 800 years before this took place. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Had Jesus been crucified at this point? No. 
Verse 5, And all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me. Of course, we know that's Christ, who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with what? Holy Spirit, when's that going to happen? Stay tuned. We'll get it, pick it up in Acts chapter 2. So now we've got the washings of the Old Testament. We have the, uh, a purification process, if you will, that John the Baptist instituted. And uh, again, things are going to change as we progress into Acts. Verse 9, Acts 1, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee of Galilee and was baptized by John in the, in the Jordan. Again, why was Jesus baptized? Well, he was ceremonially going through the cleansing. Did he need anything regarding the remission of sins at this point? No, he was not a sinner. He'd never sinned. He never would sin. But to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill, if you will, the washings that were mandated uh, uh, for cleansing oneself and what God had instituted through John the Baptist, he indeed gets baptized. And what happens? Immediately after, a voice from heaven, God the Father, saying, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All right, so again, now we have two different uh, cycles, if you will, of, of being immersed in water and water baptism again, and we're going to see it, and boy, i got to really hurry. Acts chapter 19. We're going to pick up on this baptism issue again. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So Paul is he's preaching, he's out there, he finds these individuals, and, and they're uh, baptizing, but he's like, I don't know if these guys know what they're doing. I don't know if they've been instructed in what's taking place now. And he said, do you guys have the Holy Spirit? And here's their answer. So they said to him, we have not so much heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. They had no, no understanding, if you will, about Acts chapter 2 and the giving of the Holy Spirit and all the things that would take place. So he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And he said, into John's baptism. They're still living, if you will, with, with uh, information pre-resurrection of Christ. They're still doing the baptism of repentance, if you will, looking forward to Christ. And here, here's what happens, verse 4. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him that is on Jesus Christ. Paul is preaching, so it makes it very easy to figure out the timeline here. Had Jesus ascended prior to Paul's conversion? Remember, when did Paul see Jesus? Before or after his ascension? After. So now we have Paul coming to these people, watching them basically doing John the Baptist-type baptism, and he says, hang on, guys, time out. Let me tell you about what's taking place, who Jesus is, and what baptism means today. When they heard this, what did they hear? Well, they heard the full gospel, if you will, death, burial, and resurrection, ascension of Christ. And when they heard this, what? They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we have the next progression, all right? But what's the key thing here? 
Baptism has been practiced wrongly by people across the world for the remission of sins, if you will, for uh, gaining favor with God, and it's been corrupted and corrupted and corrupted. And you're saying, well, Pastor, do you think uh, uh, churches that baptize after a person is saved are the only ones that have it right? You said it, I didn't, but I agree with you. All right. Bottom line is baptism by immersion after conversion is the only biblical baptism that exists today. You say, well, why are we going to harp on this? We've got to harp on it because tens of thousands and thousands of thousands of thousands and millions and millions of people have no concept that salvation is by grace today and they're still living under what priests and pastors and whoever else is telling them that they're saved by getting uh, baptized and they're saved by taking communion and they're saved by doing good works. Folks, that is a false gospel and is going to get no one to heaven. Again, 96% or 90, somewhere between 94 and 96%, according to the Barna Group, do not believe in salvation by grace, but they add works to it. Folks, it's a false gospel. Galatians chapter 1, Paul said, Let them be accursed who preach another gospel. So you say, Pastor, do you take it seriously? Yes. All right, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Therefore when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? When did the kingdom exist in Israel? When, when did the kingdom originally exist? Well, King David, or King Saul, came on the scene in approximately 1,000 B.C., and that is when God established him as king over Israel. So we go from approximately 1,000 B.C. until 586 B.C. when the Jewish people were run out of Jerusalem under King Nebuchadnezzar. There's been no kingdom in Israel since 586 B.C., the Jewish people came back in 1948, got back part of their land. Yes, it exists to a certain extent, but is there a king over Israel at this time? And the answer is no. There is no king in Israel. They do not control Israel. So since 586 B.C., we have been in what Luke chapter 21, verse 24 calls the times of the Gentiles. When does this end? When does Jesus restore the kingdom? Well, his answer to the disciples was, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> that was his answer then. But we know the answer. The answer is when Jesus returns to set up his millennial kingdom, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, Jesus returns and does what? He wipes out everything that's bad, battle of Armageddon, and does what? Sets up his 1,000-year millennial reign, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 7, all right? So what, what the disciples very astutely pointed out is, Jesus, we're, we're waiting for you to come to set up your kingdom. When's the millennium coming? When's your kingdom coming back? When are you going to take your place as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? They knew it. Why did they know it? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, other verses uh, uh, that talk about when Jesus would come and be the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of his government there shall be no end. That's what the Jewish people have been looking for since 586 B.C., and it still hasn't happened. Will it happen? Absolutely it will. After the rapture, of the church age on the screen after the seven-year tribulation jesus christ returns to the earth 
to set up his kingdom. That's when it will be restored. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. All right, so uh, um, if you look on your handout, I have a little bit of explanation there from Stanley Toussaint, who's with the Lord now from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Christ taught the coming of an earthly, literal kingdom. I mean, it's, it's all throughout the Old Testament and in the Gospels. Acts 1-3 states that the Lord instructed the disciples about the kingdom. He certainly gave them the right impression as to its character and future coming. What Jesus discussed here in verse 7 was the time of the coming of the kingdom. The Greek word for times or chronos basically describes duration of times and the word for dates Kairos refers to both length of time and kind of time. So the simplicity of this is Jesus knows that he's coming back to set up that kingdom, but he was not going to give them the times at that point. All right, you can read the rest on your handout, but I got to zip forward or we won't get done. Acts 1 8, but you shall, disciples, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. All right, we're going back to a slide I used uh, in our previous uh, um, series. So what is he talking about? I'll, you'll be witness to me where? In Judea, or in Jerusalem, which is the capital, if you will, of the southern part of Israel, which is Judea. So you're going to go to Jerusalem. Then you're going to branch out in Judea. Then you go up to Samaria, uh, which were the uh, Jews and Gentiles had, if you will, married each other. It was off limits. And God says, listen, you are going to go there. You are going to tell the gospel to these individuals. Then you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the world. So you'll go to Galilee and every other place uh, across the known world at that time. And, of course, today in 2022, we're still commanded. Get out there. Get the gospel to everybody you possibly can. All right, on your handout, I'm, and I'm not going to go through it. We talked about this last week, so I'm not going to go through it tonight because we need to hasten. But it goes through the progression of the gospel. So this is the chart I put on your handout for you. And what I want you to get from this as you study it and hopefully read through the first nine chapters of Acts, we find the progression of the gospel. It starts, and they go to Jews and proselytes, Acts chapter 2. It reaches out then to uh, Acts chapter 8, where then they go to the Samaritans. So the first seven chapters, it's basically Jews and proselytes. Chapter 8, they move out into Samaria, just like Acts 1-8 states. Then they start moving out and moving out, and finally, when we get to Acts chapter 8, Nine is when we have the conversion of Paul and we start talking about Gentiles that are being reached for Christ. So Acts 1-8 is literally followed exactly as it was laid out in Scripture. All right, verse 9. And when he had spoken, when Jesus had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly, again, the, the disciples are there. They're watching Jesus as he's being taken up into the air, literally floating up to heaven. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men, just be because of time, it's two angels, stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, men of Galilee, Jewish people, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. All right, where were they? Uh, 
and uh, I'm just going to skip the commentary. You can read it. I'm just going to state it. The bottom line is Jesus is, uh, and I can't go back or I'll mess myself up. Remember the Temple Mount picture? Just go up the hill a little bit. You're on the Mount of Olives. It's a half a mile away. So you walk out of the temple, you go down into the Kidron Valley, and you go up to the Mount of Olives. That is where Jesus ascended from, about a half a mile literally from where that temple stood. Boom, up he goes. The angel said, hey, why are you guys gazing up into heaven? That same Jesus that you just saw go up is going to come back in the same manner. Oh, very interesting. Now, many of you know this. How do we know where Jesus is going to return when he, when he comes back at, to set up the millennia? The millennium. Zechariah chapter 14 tells us, Acts chapter 1 tells us, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. By the way, day of the Lord referring to what period? What period? Tribulation, the seven-year tribulation period. But we're talking about the day of the Lord. So uh, we're looking at that seven-year period. We're actually getting to the end of it in Zechariah 14, right before Jesus returns. He's talking to the Jewish people. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather, this is the battle of Armageddon, I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the woman ravished, half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. What's taking place, and we always kind of say the battle of Armageddon, it's actually a campaign. While Armageddon is forming, while all the nations are forming, these things will be taking place. Jews will be persecuted. All these horrible things talked about in verse 2 will take place. But we've got to get to verse 4. Verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. What does it mean the Lord will go forth? Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Jesus returns in the air on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, figuratively speaking, and who is all with him? All the saints dressed in white follow with Jesus. Revelation 19, 11 to 21, we all come down. And in that day, the day that he comes to this earth to set up the kingdom, his feet will stand on what? The Mount of Olives, half mile up the road from the current temple. When Jesus returns, he touches down on the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Hey, guys, what are you looking at? This same Jesus that you saw, saw go up to heaven is going to come back in the exact same way. 500 years before that, Zechariah said when Jesus returns, he's going to come and land on what? The Mount of Olives, Jerusalem, half mile away. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. You better go with us in about a year because if you wait until we come back to millennium, you won't see it in its full glory. To west, making a very large valley, half the mountain will move toward the north, half of it toward the south. A little artist rendition here. What are we looking at? So the Mount of Olives, again, we're looking up at it from the Temple Mount area. You can see the Temple Mount in the first triangle, the gold dome. Up at the top, and by the way, that pillar right next to the red aerial is, is what's called the Mount of Ascension, uh, another Catholic uh, uh, monument to where Christ went up. Bible says when Jesus returns, that mountain will literally split in two when Jesus returns, spoken of in Zechariah and Acts. When's that going to happen? All right, I'm just going to very go to the end again because of time. But on God's prophetic calendar, the next major event, look at the top of the screen in the white, the rapture, 
seven-year tribulation, Jesus returns top of the screen in the dark, premillennial Christ, meaning pre-1000 year. He comes back to set up that millennial kingdom, which is when Jesus returns. All right. How do we know where, they, where he was ascended from? Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the what? The Mount called Olivet. Absolute documentation, absolutely synchronizing with Zechariah 500 years earlier that when Jesus returns, he touches down on the Mount of Olives, verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up into the what? Remember that picture I showed you back at the beginning? The upper room? where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they go up into the upper room. They're up there. They're gathered. What are they doing? They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. You stay there. You wait until what? The Holy Spirit shows up, comes down upon you, and empowers you for the ministry that I have for you. I want to give you one last thing. And i got to go to my other computer here. All right. So the last thing I want to share with you how many of you know from Scripture? Here's a, this is a 100-point question. This is a big one. How many brothers and sisters are documented in the Bible? I heard it. Who said four? Good job, Tony. You get 100 points. Four brothers and how many sisters? Well, we, here, here we go. Mark chapter 6, verse 3 is the only thing that we have as far as documentation. Uh, and it basically says, is, not, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joses, Judas, Simon, so we have four brothers, and were not his sisters, plural, here with us? Now, how many is sisters, plural? At least two. All right, so we document from Mark 6, 3 that he had four brothers and two sisters. All right, so when we're looking at this, and he says, these all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then Mark tells us about the, the names of the four brothers and at least two sisters, maybe more. All right, and if you got documentation on seven, I'll be happy to take it, but I don't know where that is. <laughs> all right, folks, was this a lot of information? It, it really is. But when you start to go through this, and I laid out a lot of things regarding, well, what's baptism? What's, what's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What, what are we doing in, in today's world when we're trying to get the gospel to people who are so confused they have no clue? And you say, well, Pastor, based on tonight, I'm confused. I didn't realize there was that much in, in the first 14 verses of Acts. Folks, it is a lot. And the unfortunate thing is that unless you do what you're doing right now, and even at the rapid pace we did, it was a massive amount of information. It's like this book is chocked full of things that are affecting everything that we're doing today. It's affecting our theology. 
It's affecting our evangelism. It's affecting how the church is to function in the current culture. All these things are all packed into this book. It starts to explain why did how did we move from a Jewish system to what we have today where Jew and are basically the same in whom? In Christ. There is no difference. But what's going to happen then when we get into the next set of chapters? All right, so here's what's going to happen, and we'll quit. Next week again, Josh Steele will be here. He's, we're going to skip Acts chapter 2. Uh, when I get back in two weeks, or th- well, it'll be the third Wednesday. I'll be gone one Sunday. We'll be back then, and then I'm going to get into Acts 2. We're going to hit it. Now, if you have friends that are struggling with uh, speaking in tongues and the gifts of the Spirit and all these different things, we're going to take our time. I'm going to walk you through it point by And we will be very open. I'll be very judicious in how I present it. But there's a whole lot of people that are really, really struggling with these issues. Why? Well, there is tremendous confusion on it. So hopefully as we... do what 2 Timothy 2.15 admonishes us to do, which is what? Study to show ourselves approved unto God. Work women, work men that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly handling or dividing the word of truth. So we're going to do everything we can to get it right. Uh, By the way, if you have questions, I know I'm, I'm bam, 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 rapid pace here. But if you have questions or it's like, man, I didn't get that or I didn't understand that, Um, You can either email me, text me, call me, and uh, hopefully I can answer any questions that you have. All right, our time is gone, and uh, appreciate you being here tonight. So I'm going to pray, dismiss you, and uh, trust you'll have a great night. And uh, if you have kids here, don't forget to pick them up in 10 minutes. (laughs) I'm not driving any kids home tonight. John Seacosh is here. He'll drive your kids home. So, (laughs) all right, let's pray. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the precious Word of God. Lord, there's so much contained just in these few verses that we went through tonight. So much doctrine that is touched on. So much confusion that exists in the church today. Uh, Not Union Grove Baptist, I trust, but the church as a whole. So Lord, I pray as we continue to take our time to go through these many, many different theological issues that we're really facing in in, the this particular age amongst uh, not just churches in America, but all over the world, things that have caused horrible divisions, things that have literally clouded the correct way, the biblical way for someone to go to heaven, all these different things, Lord, help us to learn them, to understand them, so that as we do go out and tell other folks the greatest news ever given to mankind, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that we might have a good strong answer for those who have questions regarding the things that we're looking at today. So, Father, bless us now as we go our separate ways. Pray that you'd uh, bless the folks, keep them safe as they go. Pray right now as Awana and uh, youth group shuts down, that uh, as the gospel may be presented in these last moments, that hearts might be open to receive the greatest gift ever given to mankind, and that's salvation by faith alone and what Jesus did through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. Father, help that message to be understood and to be claimed by uh, folks in this building today. And we'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you.